0: Today, we live in complex, frustrating webs of credits and debt. Producing for trade damages nature, increases carbon emissions, destabilizes weather, and leads to more fires and floods. Markets are wasteful and inefficient, causing social and ecological conflicts and injustice. Capitalism elevates banks, budgeting and prices as it degrades people and nature. Why don't we challenge the system? How about a world without money? A world based on real values, social and ecological values. A world where we co-govern all together, deciding what we make, do, and get. Imagine a global network of collectively sufficient cell like communities, each responsible for the sustainability of the local environs off which they live. Communities of various sizes living within sub bioregions offering direct efficient ways of fulfilling people's needs, producing locally close to end users. Imagine each diverse, empowered community caring for Earth, organized horizontally, relatively autonomous, and seamlessly networked globally. We have personal property, but no private property. The entire earth is commons with clear and universal principles for commoning, sharing land through secure and fair use rights. We all contribute a set amount of time to collective production. In return, all our basic needs are met.
1: The old world is
2: ending.
3: And we have the opportunity to rethink everything.
2: This is a show about the systemic problems in our world.
3: And the real solutions we have today.
1: To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological
2: collapse to create an abundantly advanced collaborative society
3: that sustains all life.
2: You may think it's an impossible dream,
3: but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare.
2: We're your hosts Matt Holton,
3: Amanda Smith,
2: and Zachary Marlow. And together
3: we can move past this economic absurdity
1: and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely
2: new. We are mindless Society. Society.
1: Perversely, even if a rich elite is most influential within the market economy, in reality, no one in particular manages any market. The market is a freewheeling and all-encompassing set of flows and activities stitched together by price signals and other monetary relations. In this market-based wonderland, money is a quasi-god. Even the power of multi-billionaires and monopolies is limited to being simply more influential in, rather than driving, the system. In short, we have all handed over control of our livelihoods to money, to monetary calculations that are irrational in terms of social and ecological values and outcomes. As such, the universal equivalent money is fatally implicated in inequalities and unsustainability. The existential threat of contemporary environmental crisis suggests that we might commit species suicide if we don't immediately get into the driver's seat and collectively move away from monetary practices. As mentioned before, there was a quote from Beyond Money by the great Anitra Nelson, a writer and professor in Australia joining us today on the show. So we don't have that many people that are true, like... Harmonious comrades in our little lane of recognizing the imperative to get away from this stuff we call money. And and I were talking before the show, and I talk often. I'm flabbergasted often by how many radicals and environmentalists and people critiquing the system who don't see anything wrong with money or markets or any of these essential embedded structures that generate the dysfunction that we see today. Obviously, I mean, to us, obviously. So. With that in mind, uh, Anitra, I would love to just throw the ball to you and let you take it away. What's wrong with money? What you know? What does that? What does all that mean? You know, money is just a tool, right? It's 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 totally innocuous. Money and markets are innocent and of themselves, huh? Right?
0: Well, I don't know about that. Uh, look, I've been um, really interested as an activist and as a scholar in both social justice and in ecological sustainability. And the more and more activism and work that I've done in both of those areas leads me to believe that one of the biggest barriers for us moving forward in terms of equity between people, um, liberation of people's human spirit and uh, becoming ecologically sustainable is is money. It's a monetary system. And uh, money is intrinsic to markets. And so if you look at the whole market system, and of course, there's been a lot of criticism of capitalism. And a lot of people talk about the market, though, as something that's quite neutral. And I one of the areas that I'm active in is the degrowth movement. And this is actually a very typical example, but there are numbers of people within the degrowth movement who do think um, that money is a problem. So uh, there's a collection I've got called Degrowth in Movements, exploring pathways for transformation. And uh, there's a chapter in there And I I was actually one of the co-authors that's on what this particular group of authors called demonetisation, a a no money uh, future and and why degrowth actually needs to be non-monetary in order to achieve its goals. So within um, Marxist kind of traditions, socialism, anarchism, degrowth and and environmental justice, there are streams of people who think, like we do, that money is a really big problem and that we need to be looking towards non-monetary economies as ways to solve our problems. But it's a minority group. So... Uh, both in my activism and in my scholarly work, I became really intrigued over this, and so have spent a lot of my life kind of following through on ways that we can become uh, less market oriented and build non-monetary economies. and uh, and i and I think here, People writing and discussing about this is really important because one of the big things that you notice throughout history is is that markets and trade and money undermine all kinds of non-monetary interactions between people. And we have to be really explicit, we have to be really politically conscious that we're doing things in a non-monetary way and why we're doing them and proselytize that because otherwise there's just going to be a continual struggle between these different ways of trying to achieve better relationships between us and between people and earth.
1: I wanna pull this quote here from a really great little article. Someone wrote her essay called um, Karl Marx on capital as a real god and that's that's sort of what that quote um from your book evoked it says modern bourgeois society with the relations of production exchange and property is a society that has conjured up such a gigantic means of production and of exchange is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells and it's essentially true I mean we we are money is not just this this token of exchange this way of greasing the wheels of of you know circulation of goods and services it is a thing we are subjugated to it is in in terms of like the structures of the imagination of what we can imagine and that's i think one of the reasons we are in such a minority of people talking about this pushing this to its end point or its or its starting point which is this, this, you know, like the people that will make distinctions between, oh, capital is bad, but money is just a thing. You know, it's it's fine. And it's, a, you know, like Jason Hickel uh, in his book, Less is More, said that basically he said markets and money are essentially innocuous. They're just fine. They're whatever, which I think is very strange when you really understand the monetary system and how it works and how interest drives infinite growth and all of these mechanisms that are these massive external structures. And then there are these exchange paradigms that wheedle their way into it, our innermost Hearts and minds. I'm reading David Graeber's Debt right now, and it's just incredible that the language of debt and of, of economic transaction has made its way into spiritual life, so that we think that God sent His Son as a as a you know as a present to us to clear us of our debts as this debt jubilee, you know, that we have a debt to the to the gods. I mean, it, it is completely embedded in us to the point where. People can't see a world without it. They can't fathom it. They just think, yeah, it's been here forever. It's always been with us. And it it just so clearly hasn't. When you dig even a, a little, an inch beneath the surface of what we take for everything, which is a very small sliver of human existence.
0: You can't actually define capitalism without the word money and the concept of money. It's just money growing more money. And so it seems absolutely intrinsic to the notion of capital. And so what people don't recognize, people like Jason Hickel, is that in order that, that, and the way also that Marx analyzes capitalism, you can actually see how you can't use money without, The whole notion of capital growing out of the kind of practices that are intrinsic to money. See, a lot of people will say interest is the real problem. Capitalism, that is money making more money, is the real problem. But I always remind people that right back, well before capitalism took hold, when Plato and Aristotle had quite a famous discourse over money, they had already noticed that there were kind of benign ways of using money. They appeared benign, but there were also very obvious ways in which people made gain out of using money. So already, even before you actually have a system, you've got the problem. That's one of the key reasons you've got to move beyond money.
3: Thank you yeah well I, I just want to say first of all before I, I state my original comment as I am so gratified to hear this conversation unfolding as, as I usually am when we have a podcast you know our, our, our conversations are always um, heartwarming to at least us who are on the same page here uh, because I too have looked at uh, mr. Hickle's content and wondered um, how he hasn't been able to take that next step and realize you know money being a, a you know the root of the issues that that he is trying to combat with his work which is obviously um something to aspire to and something that we should look into utilizing to a degree. But like with the uh, I think it's the the green job uh, promise aspect of it. I'm just like, how can you not realize that jobs are part of the issue, forcing people to go to work and uh, you make that money to pay back into the market? is just generating more of the same issues. There's really no way to combat it unless you remove that market dynamic, at least the market as we know it. And so that ties into what I was originally going to say. And and I'm just curious, um, how does your book speak to that distinction you made earlier about how we have to become less market oriented? I think that we speak a lot here about how money is bad you know to put it in general terms uh but we don't always delve into how the market plays a part in that and how it is not neutral
1: quick sidebar there i just want to uh say we, we pick on jason Hickel here because not because he's uh lacking in, in many ways but because i i mean i personally consider him one of the most ex- amazing anti capitalist scholars alive i mean he's a fucking rock star and it's just it's just weird that somebody who is so brilliant and so just prolifically on fire <laughs> uh, you know just doesn't take this step just wanted to point that out
3: yeah we're definitely not trying to be uh, uh derogatory in our critique uh but yeah um just wondering how, how do we how do we go forward making that distinction you know how, how do we get people out of that mindset that things have to be accessed through a market dynamic
0: just moving off
3: from you know, the diving board of Jason, um,
0: I'm quite gratified because he, um, he wrote a foreword to a book that I co-wrote with Vincent Ligi called Exploring Degrowth. And uh, I totally agree with you. Jason's work is really fantastic and, and a lot of it is right on the money. <laughs> but he, but he's an economist and and i think that that it's problematic i've very much i i became very interested in economics um, early on in my university career and then i but i was able to move sideways and if you can speak as an historian of economics or if you can talk more as a sociologist or as a political scientist, you have greater liberties than being an economist. So that I think that a lot of my colleagues who are economists are really bound to speak about money because economics as a discipline, as we know it, if you're going to argue against money, you're really pulling the carpet out from under the whole field so you're not going to sort of make friends and influence people that way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, on the on the question of kind of how we might get there so in my book there, I there I think that there's a lot of different ways and I in my mind I liken it to the situation um, that I was in with a lot of Um, other women in the women's liberation movement in the late 60s and early 70s. People knew that there were massive things wrong in their personal relationships um, uh, with not being able to have access to work and and a whole range of issues. And really the women's liberation movement got as far as it did, I think, because it it had um, a very open attitude to how you would get there. And it was really basically shoot in all directions, do as much as you can, everywhere and anywhere. And so although a sort of classic Marxist or, or many kind of leftist-oriented um, groups, and but rightist groups probably be exactly the same, have a very kind of strategic and tactical kind of um Uh, conversation and way forward I I actually prefer to think about doing everything that you can within the confines of your life today and then and then trying to open up ways that you can do even more things because that's the way that I saw the women's movement move forward and some of the ways that I um I found uh Really useful to sort of think about these things was that I spent, for instance, um, about a month at Twin Oaks in Virginia, which is a um, it's a an intentional hmm. community or hmm. eco village that's been going for um, decades and decades, uh, so very well established. But there, I mean, the the essential. Um, compact between those people is one of a, a, of a commune where you you all put in a certain amount of work per week and all of your basic needs are met. And when I was there, they were involved in certain activities which brought money into the community, but it, it worked out to be around $7,000 per head um and people themselves actually each got about a thousand dollars of that and the rest of that money was put back into doing kinds of things that um were related to self-provisioning collective provisioning and um so I think that that's a kind of, it's an interesting model in terms of a big group of people getting together. However, um, you need to sort of have the means of production. And part of, the, part of the reason that they were able to get off the ground, which I think is much harder for groups nowadays, is, is that they were actually given some land and then they, they, they made a bit of money on the side, they bought some more land and that kind of thing. And then that's actually held like a trust. So anyone who joins um, Twin Oaks, they benefit from all of that, but if they leave it, they leave all of that behind as well. I think that there are numerous different ways, um, especially in the degrowth movement, for instance, people are developing other ways of producing things Which have more money free aspects to them. And so there's a, there's a, uh, what I call a degrowth formation in Budapest called Cargonomia. And they make um, bikes, including cargo bikes. Um, They have, They have a a space in which people can come and repair their own bikes. They have people there who will show people how to repair the bikes. They've got all the equipment um, so that people can do that. So you become a member and you've got access to hiring bikes, to repairing your bike and all of that kind of thing. They also have a, um, a, a small farm on the edge of Budapest and um, some of Cargonomia's founding members are um, part of a local university and so they not only grow things um, in a regenerative farming kind of way there, organic um, methods and all of that kind of thing, but uh, they also have a lot of interns and they have people coming there and doing research and these are all money-free kind of, you know, kind of deals that are made with people um, they act as a kind of socio-political hub so if anyone's interested in degrowth, they can go and hear talks and all of that kind of thing they've made lots of partnerships say with um, Budapest Council in terms of eco-forestry forest and uh, community gardens in the city centre and all of that kind of thing and Yesterday, I went to a, um, to a space in Melbourne where you can walk in and you can, you can actually make picture frames and you can actually set up, put your paintings into frames. And again, there are people helping you do all of that kind of thing. And I'm thinking that if we start to break up some of the ways that we produce things, individually and in collectives, that all of these ways involve people actually being more con- in control of their own lives and and uh, doing things in a more collectively sufficient kind of way because we're all connected like that. And I th- see these as some of the ways forward.
3: Hmm. Thank you for answering that. It sounds like you're um, pointing out that uh, essentially we should operate um, within the parameters of hyper-localized projects to uh, grow the movement, as Marlo is always saying, uh, in a pollination uh, type format where, you know, here and there and a little bit everywhere, people are doing these things on a local level and it just begins to spread and spread and spread until all the corners touch. I'm sorry, Matt had something to say.
2: Oh, yeah. No, I was just kind of going to backtrack a little bit uh, uh, going back to I think if we could kind of sum up, you know, exactly why money it tends to be a problem. It's 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 really just, you know, I, Peter Joseph put it really well. It's the mechanism of profit, essentially. Profit and the incentive that it provides to people just acts as a, as a reinforcing conditioning loop, right? You get profit and you're incentivized to go out and make more profit because essentially that money gets you everything. You know, money not only acts as a, you know, access point to everything in life, but it also acts as a barrier. So if you don't have that money, you pretty much don't have almost anything in life now because practically everything is commodified at this point, even down to water and clothes and shelter. And, you know, people say money can't buy you love, you know, but it's a lot easier to, to, uh, you know, get a date when you have money to take somebody out to dinner, you know, or they say, you know, Oh, it doesn't build relationships, but it's a lot easier to have relationships with people in a community when you can buy a home, you know, in the community that you prefer, you know, and things like that. And so, not only are people incentivized to do it they're really forced to do it one way or the other because you can't even function in normal society without money you know and and it's just to that point now where everything is commodified so the uh, the key to me is just to try to decommodify these things where we're actually producing them on our own you know within our own communities localized production systems and that way you know, we don't, the money is no longer a barrier, a point, you know, and it does, it's not required for that access essentially. And, um, one of the ways that I talk about in my book doing this is just simply cooperatives. If we start forming cooperatives in our local communities and, uh, you know, w- and the, and if the people who come together and form these cooperatives have the intention and the purpose of providing, you know, each other with these goods and decommodifying them essentially, then then that's really kind of the key behind it. You know, there's there's cooperatives out there like Mondragon, you know, who have 80,000 employees, and they're and they're doing really well with, you know their, what they're doing there, I guess, solar solar panel modules or something, I forget exactly what it is that they produce, but they don't really have this purpose, you know, behind it. There's there's other cooperatives in the United States, like the Arismendi Bakery and, you know, cooperate cooperation, Jackson, I think, you know, and a few others. But it's it's really kind of aligning with this purpose. And like you said, creating your own means of production. And that's, and that's the key right there is creating your own means of production. And what I see happening is kind of a transitional point is, is purposely creating our own means of production, essentially for one thing after the other, you know, creating that purpose creating those means of production and following that purpose to essentially what we call providing people with universal basic goods and services at that point. And a lot of people are familiar with the concept of universal basic income, right? Andrew Yang here in the United States grew a massive platform, you know, off of universal basic income. And he really took that idea and ran with it. But why can't we just give people what they need? Why can't we decommodify these things and essentially just say, Hey, here's the necessities of what you need to live and the choice we can we can do that if we choose to do that and we go about these things with that sort of purpose and and that's kind of really the key is forming these cooperatives and going in that direction just one after the other okay what are we going to decommodify first food i think is a good place to start right everybody Mm -hmm. needs to eat to live so that'd be a good that's one of the reasons why i advocate for regenerative agriculture so much as well because well people got to eat you know if you're living under a bridge you still need to eat, right? (laughs) So it's kind of a, a logical place to start food, water, decommodify shelter, decommodify clothing. And one after the other, if you form these cooperatives, they can start to network. You can still function within a capitalist society, but as long as you're producing that surplus and you're decommodifying these goods and you can give them to your members for free, then that's kind of a key transition point, in my opinion. That's one of the things that I discuss in my book as well, is just forming a network of cooperatives to decommodify these goods and give the, essentially give them to their members for free. And, and at that point, you're able to start phasing in a system of universal basic goods and services and voluntarily phasing out money. You know, as as long as people are happy and getting what they need, then in the long term, I think a lot of people would be happy to say, you know, I don't need money. I can function here and I don't have to stress out over, you know, working all these different jobs. And, uh, you know, that's that. I, I see that kind of as a, a good starting point, you know, to really start putting in these systems in place. And it sounds like you're kind of on the same page in, in a lot of ways. Would I be wrong in, in, in saying that?
0: No, I mean, I, I think that you've raised some um, some really um, interesting topics there. So the problem with a minimum basic income, if it's looked at, that everyone receives the same amount, is is that we all have different basic needs. Um, all of our um, uh, standards of health are, are different or, you know, uh, over our different ages of people require, have different needs. If you're a bigger person, you need more food. You know, there's, there's just so many things that a um, minimum basic income doesn't actually address. So, if, And we're looking at a planet that's now very highly into uh, production for trade but we have massive hunger and homelessness, even with the, in the very heart of the countries that have got standards of living, which mean that they would actually really have to be uh, and do use kind of like four planets worth of, of resources and energy. Um, so we really need to be thinking, like you say, starting with basic needs, what are our basic needs? Then we have, instead of production for trade, production for demand. And it's a whole different way of looking at what an economy might be. Then what we can do is sit back and say, well, how do we satisfy those needs? And as smaller communities, you can do this more easily and you can actually, like Twin Oaks, have be able to satisfy maybe 80% of your needs within a very small um, distance away from you. You can actually see how the things Mm -hmm. are made. So you can see that they're made in fair ways or you can have an influence on them being made in more fair ways or being made in better ways for the planet or whatever. Um, I can say more, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about co-ops, but I think Marlowe is interested in saying something.
1: I just have a point that I wanted to say, um, inspired by, directly inspired by a, a really fantastic video I watched about egalitarianism the other day by a channel called What is Politics? And he talked about true egalitarian societies, societies that are, he called super egalitarian societies, where... There is truly no differential between women, men, rich, poor, everyone who makes equal political decision-making. That's an essential element of, of equality is the ability to make decisions collectively. And he, talk, they, he talked about these being immediate return societies, hmm. and so the, meaning societies that aren't producing and hoarding up stockpiles of grain. They're essentially what they need. They go and get from nature. They consume it. They're not storing it or you know stacking it up. And I think, even in the sense where we are creating in a delayed sort of way, where we're like producing things that take time and things like that, growing food, I think that the switch to that uh, demand-based instead of economy of scale, where you're you know just producing this fuckload of everything, you know, in the hope that someone needs it, you're you're getting a sense of of a much more. what's the word i'm looking for a specific accounting i mean it's just, it's a, economics is lacking from our economic system completely we don't have an, an accounting of the things that the people need the per, the uh, you know resources and the um, you know natural wellsprings of, of the life-giving things that we need in nature and around us and what we can produce and what the people in our networks can produce and that's completely lacking And that you know idea of re, a resource-based economy that starts with what do we have okay what do we need Another thing that I wanted to say there is that he was talking about tribes, that the the definition of a tribe is a group of people who manage their economic needs collectively. And that's essentially, I think, the essential shift in a transitional sense and in a long-term shift is that you form these entities, call them a co-op, call them a community, call them whatever you want. But it's a group of people who say, okay we don't want to interface with the dark evil ring of power this corrupting you know substance of money you know it's it's interesting people talking about being anarcho-capitalistic or having a commune that has an individual owner so you're not a it's not a commune it's just a, a very nice feudal arrangement you know so essentially if somebody owns more than other people in the society they have more power you know naturally that not not just in the form of money, but in the form of resources. And I think that is that root socioeconomic orientation of someone has more than other people and they can use it to compel them to do things for them. They have more inertia in society. They get more decision making. Somebody owns the land on a commune and they don't like someone because they don't bathe. They can say, buy. And that makes them essentially a little tiny king. And so the idea is creating these collective funding pools and saying groups of people coming together and saying, we're going to manage our economic needs collectively. We're going to produce the things that we need collectively on a basically for demand, not cranking out as much as we can to trade it out and sell it and make money off of it. But we're producing for the things that we need locally with, you know, things like the bike fixing service you were talking about, finding services and sustainable forms of being able to make money, to being able to provide people with whatever it is, a lump sum, whether that's what they need, so-and-so has medical bills that we can't fit in the, in the tribe, or we need to go and get technologies to help with our system, or we want to invest in the system itself, you know, get, investing in the energy system or, you know, some irrigation equipment to create ponds or whatever it is, you know, the, the resource of money is unfortunately very essential to create anti-money structures. You know, it's got to be a money-less society before it's a money-less society. So I just think that that idea of a collective funding pools and creating networks. I mean Jeremy Rifkin of all people, you know, not not who you'd imagine for a degrowthist communist or whatever. You know, he talks about the transition from markets to networks and I think even in the idea of individualized co-ops we we still can take that a step further into what so what some people are calling platform cooperatives where yeah. there's, you know, everybody who does a certain thing in a community or in a, a city or even, you know, nationwide form into this platform. They incorporate into this this network where they become this larger entity. So they're not, you know, they say there's 20 Mexican food restaurants in a town. This is the problem with markets. Even if they're small scale, even if they're local. I noticed this at a farmer's market the other day. My tangent is getting, my grains in the hourglass are running out. I'm gonna pass it to whoever's <laughs> next next. But I noticed this <laughs> at a farmer's market. that That's the idea that we have of markets. Oh yeah, you're going to the flea market. I'm gonna go buy some candles. Like that—that's the view that we have of money that goes back to Adam Smith. It's just this deeply naive, wrong thing that you know, money for hit for most of human history, as Graber points out, meant your daughter's going to get dragged away if you don't have enough of it. Your land is going to get stripped and you're going to be <laughs> cast out into the world if you don't have money. That's how people think about money and have for the majority of human history. Not like oh, I'm going to go buy a nice trinket. But sorry. Anyway, um, damn it, I lost my train of thought there. But <laughs> yeah, 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 it, the farmers' market. Even in a farmer's market, cutesy, nice little. Oh, okay. There's no mega monopoly that's dominating everybody and making them, you know, work for them. There's no homeless encampment behind it because, you know, of all the dynamics of trade and markets and jobs and those things. You have two shawarma shops because that's what I noticed, and they were right next to each other. They're competitors. It's very cute and nice that people are going up and spending money, a handful of paper money for a sandwich. It's so so tangible. It's not bits and mega fucking you know aggl- agglutinations of you know profit and you know data streams of derivatives and all this abstraction. It's very tangible. You know, let's just bring capitalism back to that, to something we got our hands around. Those two people providing the same service are competitors in a scarce pool of consumers with a scarce pool of resources, and the only way that they can get more money literally to stay afloat to get with those the, that competing pool of consumers is you could say oh well they can provide a better product well that's not really what competition is what they're going to end up doing is cutting their is cutting wages or ex- externalizing costs to the environment cutting the quality of what they're doing the quality of their ingredients which is one of the reasons everything is so unhealthy and cancerous and carcinogenic you know they have to make cuts and this this is an erosion of social of social good so we we should recognize these dynamics and not say, oh, that's not the problem, or, or oh, we don't want to push people too far. Let's we're we're talking about a revolution here, no matter what. Why are we curtailing our imagination to say we want a partial revolution? We want 70% revolution and we're gonna keep this. You know, it's like we're gonna we're gonna bring the fire out of our houses. I think we we're call gonna, that we're gonna keep the smoke, though. We're gonna keep we're gonna keep the flamethrower turned on just mildly. <laughs>
3: That sounds else like a
1: Take it away, please. I'm talking. I'm talking. May I, unless
3: in each of you, have a direct response there? Response. You go ahead. Wonderful. Well, I just wanted to make um, a distinction, as I often do. Thank you. In certain terms, for our listeners who may or may not be aware, obviously, all of us sitting here are, and a lot of our listeners already are, Uh, but when Matt talks about our vision for universal basic goods and services, and you talk about, Anitra, degrowth in terms of uh, switching uh, the model to production on demand, uh, the contrast, I think, is worth noting, and that is what we have now. Is you know that model of infinite growth, uh, but if you pull it down, uh, what capitalism does and what the monetary system does uh, under almost any uh, design set forth so far is create this artificial demand, uh, and then throw in an artificial scarcity element, like so many people need these flat screen TVs, but there's only so many of these flat screen TVs. So we're going to charge this price because it's a scarce item. And in doing that, what we've driven ourselves to is the edge of tangible scarcity of resources here on on Earth. And so, uh, yeah, so just want to point that out. But really quickly, Peter Joseph, uh, you know, a lot of people have said you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And I I just, uh, one one instance, he used it in reference to technology and how it shaped our culture. And that just always really stood out to me. Uh, For myself, I see consumerism as the genie that we may not be able to put back in the bottle. That seems to be one of the biggest hurdles. And obviously that's what degrowth is trying to combat directly. But what I don't find in my uh, study of degrowth thus far, and I haven't delved extremely deep yet, um, is a strategy for combating what consumerism entails. Uh, I think we'd all agree that uh, there are many layers there to unfold. Things like entitlement, colonialism, uh, inherent inequality, Uh exploitation versus regenerative practices. How is that all approached through the lens of uh, degrowth? Is there a paradigm shift strategy for that? Or is it still, as I'm hearing from all of you, very uh, centralized on how do we shape the market, this quote unquote neutral uh, element into something that, that we can meet everyone's needs with? Oh, and just really quickly before you answer, I just want to apologize. I am not sitting here being rude texting. If you see me looking away or using my phone, I have very low brain injury today, and I'll be honest with you all. I am taking notes so I don't forget what a teacher says, and I can respond <laughs> coherently.
2: There we go. I got my trusty uh, mail piece here that I'm taking notes on. How many times have <laughs> we done that? I <laughs> ah. Funny. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think you raised Anita. some really interesting um, issues there, Amanda, especially around pricing, which I just, I, I, I mean, there's a long Marxist tradition, and and within economics itself, there are arguments over what the value is that money represents and that kind of thing, and I see it in a philosophical sense as referring back to labour. But I can't see that there is any close link there between the time that people take doing things or whatever, because people's wages are always so disparately different at different levels and in different organisations. So when you're talking about you know the artificiality of pricing, even in what Marx would call small commodity production, we say, uh, and this would be artificial as well, that, you know, each person themselves made things which then they exchanged with other people who just had things where you'd, you'd get something which might be a fairly getting towards an equality of of, of exchange. All of that is still artificial. Everything is artificial because the context is always malleable and changeable all the time and I always think it's very strange when people run arguments that if you use this technology or um, if you have um, an enterprise in this area it's more economic because there are so many variables that it's extremely difficult with complex Ways that firms are built near nowadays um, to actually be able to compare every every factor, and in that often say that in a crisis, you know, it's always the uneconomic firms that go bust, and that's not really right because it's often the people who are richer who've got more padding in a whole variety of ways, or even quite accidental. Aspects of monopoly in what they do or whatever that um, that succeed. Um, so I think it is really important to think about how weird prices are as 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 they evolve in markets. And I don't know of any market where pricing makes any kind of like really logical sense. And I tie that logic back to basic needs of humans and the basic needs of earth. Um, So in degrowth, um, the ways that, that some of the arguments in our exploring degrowth book uh, around, well, even if we had, um, we could satisfy infinite needs, for, for example, would that actually be a really good thing? A lot of the questioning is around consumption, um, also as how can you feel comfortable consuming a lot when other people literally cannot consume enough to satisfy their basic needs? That they're still hungry, that they're homeless, those kinds of things. How can't you feel, you know, so, there's, there's a lot of different ways of challenging a commodity-oriented kind of economy. And so there's a lot of emphasis in the degrowth movement. It has a lot of similarities in this way with simple living, except it has a m- much stronger political kind of um, consciousness. Um, so it's looking at things being slow, being small, and... Uh, about having time to have strong relationships with people and to care about the earth and to care about people directly and politically it's a lot about autonomy. So instead of what we regard as a very false form of democracy, representative democracy, it's about substantive democracy where people have maximum say over how things um, are run in their in their everyday lives and and about things that they care about. So it's around autonomy.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and I'd, I'd kind of like to piggyback off that a little too. I would say it's uh, the more people participate and the more they start seeing like real social progress and, and real, um, I guess, you know, I don't want to say conditioning really, but I guess that's kind of what it is, you know, conditioning from actual, tangible, concrete benefits in real life, you know, relationships and, you know, actual, you know, helping contribution to the community and developing those relationships and, and respect and, uh, you know, just forward progress for both themselves and for the whole community, I think, you know, the more that happens, the more basically the, the socio, the sociopathy or sociopath, however you <laughs> the, the sociopathic tendencies you that arise millionaire. from the, <laughs> basically those, those tendencies that arise from the profit incentive, the more those will go back you know, to the background uh, and, and it's probably not going to be something that happens overnight. This, it'll be kind of a gradual transitional process as, as these communities develop. And as we start to see more of these tangible benefits in our real lives, you know, as, as we focus more and more on those relationships, on those actual commu- community benefits, on producing real Things for each other and helping one another in, in in cooperative ways, the more the more that value will be reinforced over time. Essentially, you know, it's and it's it's something that'll you know kind of start small and then snowball over time as these communities develop and grow and network and people really start to see those tangible benefits, and they're reinforced, you know, through essentially the. The psychological, you know, method of operant conditioning, you know, and um, I think a lot of what we do as far as consumerism these days is is really just to try to replace a lot of those needs. You know, Charles Eisenstein had a really good quote in this book: uh, "the you know, the more the, the beautiful world our hearts, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible." He talks about you know all these things being substitutes for what we're really seeking in in our lives. And and the more we actually get the things that we really need in our lives, you know, like these, you know, just relationships and benefits and everything like that, the more the money will fade to the background and the more we'll really start to value these real things, these real benefits. And um, and it'll take time. You know, it's not something that'll happen overnight. It'll be it'll be a process and it'll probably take, you know, years, decades, maybe even generations for these things to, to kind of, you know, fully take place and solidify. But, you know, the more we focus on it, the more we put forth those efforts, I feel like the more the faster it'll happen, essentially, if if we consciously try to do those things within our own lives, within our communities, developing communities, developing these relationships, developing the systems that actually produce those tangible benefits. You know, the more we focus on those, the more people see those benefits, the more it'll reinforce themselves, and the faster we'll get, you know, to essentially winding down consumerism, you know, and I guess implementing the opposite or or you know the whatever comes instead of consumerism i'm not whatever the opposite of consumerism would be so i'm not exactly sure what you would call i don't, I don't know
1: about you guys but what i what i really do want is a, a vibrating lazy boy chair with a, a plastic foot washer and a large cherry <laughs> coke with a, a double cheeseburger for mcdonald's and a big screen television with all the rare earth metals and all the uh the oppression uh all all the, all the oppression minerals shimmering my screen into, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the ability to, uh, destroy myself in virtual reality worlds with a headset. And, uh, that's really what I want. So, uh, switching gears a little bit here, Anitra, your book is called beyond money, a post-capitalist strategy. So shifting into the realm of solutions and less on the micro hyper, hyper localized, you know, um, you know, uh, small operations, I'm curious to hear what your view of a macro, big picture, global transformation of our system is going to look like, could look like, where could it start and where where do you see it ending up?
0: Well, I do really see it happening at a grassroots level in terms of these practical changes in economies themselves. And I think that if you can imagine a whole series of smaller communities, you know, like a rash all over the globe, that are a position sort of in a bioregional context, they're substantially um, collectively sufficient within their areas, but then they they exchange with their neighbors and they exchange on the universal principles that they have within their community. And that is if you need that, then you have a right to it. And so this would not be trade as we know it at all, but um, exchanges that are more like the kinds of exchanges we make in households between one another. We know some, you know, we do certain things, other people do certain things. It's like caring Mm -hmm. and sharing, all of that kind of thing. And they need to be universal principles. I mean, trade is a universal kind of like right and principle and a lot of our international law is all based around trade. Well, how about us having international universal principles that are more around sharing and caring? And this fits very much with a lot of um ecofeminist thought, for instance um yeah. and, and a lot of ecological justice movements so it's it's not beyond the realms of possibility
2: yeah to 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 piggyback off that really quick i i we had heard a term a while back um i think it was Robert Robert schram or, or i forget exactly where or, where we heard it from originally uh it was it was um. Essentially, I really liked it and I've kind of adopted it ever since it was trade based reciprocity or transactional reciprocity, which is like what our current system relies upon, as opposed to systemic reciprocity to where you put into the system, essentially, and the entire system kind of gives back when and where you need it. You know, it's and so you don't have to have this trade-based mechanism anymore. It's not a trade-based system; it's a it's a systemic systemic reciprocity. And I really, I really like that term. And uh, that's kind of something that you know that I try to kind of keep coming back and, and bringing bringing that term into a kind of a mainstream context. So I think some, some for me, I kind of latched onto it. It makes a lot of sense to me. And so I don't know. I thought it just thought I'd throw that in. There.
0: Um, indigenous. Indigenous peoples have a, a very similar kind, they, they have very strong relationships between one another and with the earth. Um, we're very aware of that in Australia because we were only settled, we only, the white invasion took place only just over 200 years ago and we still have lots of migrants coming into Australia. We invaded a country that had over 600 different tribal groups, each with their own language and really subtle ways of collectively being sufficient and and exchanging with their neighbours, various various metal goods and there's a whole lot of kind of like exchange routes that they used to have. So it's definitely um, uh, possible to have these, this other kind of network of relationships like that. And it's definitely kind of uh, the way that we would be moving forward. In actual fact, with, Say Twin Oaks is part of the um, Federation of Egalitarian Communities, which is a small network, but they exchange labour. People, people will go from one community and spend time on another community like a bit of a holiday, um, or maybe they've got skills and knowledge that that community needs and hasn't got in its community. And they also they have a combined insurance insurance networks as well so they build up their own insurance (laughs) firm as it were but you know like it's networked insurance we can be doing this kind of thing lots of like-minded community enterprises could be doing these sorts of things
2: that's awesome i didn't know that they had a networked uh, insurance thing and then just that they were that interconnected that's really cool to hear that's great so I was going to say a second ago about the the system, you know? I mean, and that's
1: the probably our most overused word on this program, you know, and I think it's it's
3: arguably more than capitalism.
2: <laughs>
1: well, capitalism is the system, right? It's the They're system synonymous. The problem is the system, <laughs> blame, you know, it's blame not, the system, not the people, right? <laughs> it's it's not the individual creatures involved and I think it's it's some it's bigger than our values you know, it's bigger than our, uh, intentions, you know, and that's how, that's one of the attitudes that I think a lot of people put onto money or markets or these systems that, you know, they say it's, it's more like it's the how, you know, it's how people are using it. Like the MMT community says things often about how, you know, it's just how we use money. It's just a tool and it, it can be used for good. And I, you know, of course we have to create transitional structures that use, you know, the the hammer <laughs> to break down this oppressive thing that has been built up around us. But as, I don't know who said it, but the master's tools will not be un, un, undone. Sorry, the master's tools will not break down the master's house. Mm. I don't know whose quote that is, but I think that's, it's just this, basically this quote that means that the system's not going to break the system. The solution to the system isn't more a system. It's new and different system. And we get, a que- we get questioned often about, all these things about oh how would we do this and how would we do this and how would we do this and the answer is simply but infinitely exp- expansively you know we create a better system to do that we create a system to incorporate all of these these elements of cooperatives of you know degrowth of scaling back things in, you know in terms of our own consumption we we reconnect our economic processes through networked digital systems that allow us to take better account of what we're what we're using what we need connect to connect each other with each other you know to create these these resource flows that you know can utilize things like automation and ai eventually to you know basically take so much of the brute labor and the unnecessary use of our time and energy that is so you know, resource intensive in so many ways. I mean, I just think about how much more uh, to to those people that I'm sure are skeptical of things like AI and automation. And a a lot of the degrowth community has heavy overlap in the sort of anarcho-primitivist community where they think technology itself is the problem. And- As no single thing is the solution, you know, where anybody who thinks that just technology is a solution and we can just go from fossil fuels to, you know, uh, wind turbines and things like that, they don't understand the the, you know, biophysical reality of what they're talking about. But ultimately, we need to create a new system to integrate all of these things together and to keep adding to it, to create this mutually reinforcing feedback loop, to create the, you know, essential elements of like adding plants to a permacultural system that all enriched this soil, this thing that holds them all together. You know, this ecosystem that was the system that indigenous peoples, you know, relied on that connected them, that held them together. That was their value system, that was their ethics, their God in many ways. And that's what holds us together. But that was the life way. You know, it wasn't this abstracted, you know, <laughs> fractalated, fucking pixelated thing that did that, you know, didn't really physically exist and our system you know will will have many elements of it that are digital that are you know quite unimaginable especially you know compared to the brutally crude systems that we have today but it's ultimately about creating a mechanism to allow human beings to have agency over their world and to co-collaborate a better future with the natural world around them and that that's hard for people to understand you know they think you can just Take one piece out of the system here and one piece out of the system, and that's not systems thinking. There's a great diagram that I saw recently that really stuck with me that said a, syst- a heap is a bunch of things that are disconnected. You can take something out of it or put something in it and it doesn't really change it. It's just a fucking pile of laundry, you know, <laughs> as a system, if you take one piece out of that system, everything else is affected. You can't pull one strand out of a spider web without the whole thing coming apart, you know. You can't pull just one piece out of a geodesic dome. It's all interconnected, you know, and that's that's the attitude. That if we truly reckon with that and apply that systemic lens to the way that we look at the world, I think a lot of this namby pamby kind of uh, wishy washy waffling, like just just do this or or this is the the way to. I mean. That all these people have these different individualized, you know, separatized solutions that in their own weird way reinforce the ultimate logic of separateness that is at the heart of who we are as an organism, as a being, as a living thing in this system of trade, in this system where, you know, we don't owe anyone anything because we're all squared off by this system of trade, you know. I don't know you anything. You don't know me anything. It's this, we're in this planet of, or this void, this universe of spread out stars, infinitely distant, connected by nothing. You know, we're even, you know, in the galaxy, stars are connected by these gravitational connections, these ebbs and flows that, you know, ultimately we need each other and we need to get the fuck out of this individualistic prison. Or we're going to die alone.
3: (laughs) Each of us in our own little cubicles completely isolated from each other because that's that's our culture now you know hyper individualism um and all you said i think a wonderful distinction to make there is um oh gosh my low brain energy has triumphed my train of thought (laughs) oh come back to me it was good um Just speaking about how we have become so hyper-individualized and isolated from each other, um, and then trade versus reciprocal relationships. If you look at it this way, um, this is gonna be a really general example, but you've heard uh, the old saying, borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor, right? That's a reciprocal type of relationship. You live right next to each other, you have for decades, you might for decades more, you are part of a mini ecosystem that has to survive one way or another. And probably you're going to do it in a way where you're interconnected because you live right next to each other. It wouldn't make sense to live as if you're two completely separate entities that are never going to interact or need to depend on each other in any way whatsoever, even though that seems to be how neighborhoods are these days. But having said that, the difference between reciprocal relationships and trade based relationships, to me at least, uh, it, it points out that in, bar, in lending a cup of sugar to your neighbor, you are seeing your neighbor as an extension of yourself. If you walked up to your door and asked for a cup of sugar, would you not want to be, uh, w- you know, welcomed warmly and given that cup of sugar versus the door slammed in your face and turned away or. If you walked up to the door and asked for a cup of sugar, would you be would you want to be asked for two dollars and and know that after that exchange happens, you're not going to talk to that neighbor ever again? You're you're treated or as something. If they
1: just gave you back like another cup of sugar, you'd be like, what the fuck?
3: Yeah, I know. Like, I guess what I'm trying very poorly to say is, transactions, as we know from studying indigenous cultures, um, don't honor our interconnectedness. They are inherently severing. Uh, in nature, whereas reciprocal relationships uh, recognize and honor that interconnectedness and regenerate it with every interaction, like sustain it, basically. So uh,
0: the way that um, I perceive it in degrowth, with a lot of degrowth activists, so there's a tendency to prefer simple technology just for the pure reason that If you can do something simply, why not just do it as simply as you can? Um, But you need to use the word simple to cover everything, whether that involves effort, uh, Earth's resources, uh, time, all of those kinds of things. So simple is not just um, you know, I think you referred to primitivism or whatever. uh, in degrowth, there's evolved a uh, a reference point in terms of technology, which conceptualizes a way forward in what's called convivial technology. So, convivial technology is like a bike.
3: Hmm.
0: It's easy for us to use. It's It's a human scale. Um, It's human scale. It's easy for us to repair. We can see how it works, and it's user friendly, and everyone can have one quite easily. So that's what that's the way of approaching technology, and it's seen that the decisions are not made just by one person. But convivial technology is something that should be decided by a community of people. So uh, I think that's always kind of quite interesting because from my knowledge, it's it's a unique way of looking at technology and I think it tries to unpack and counter any of that sense that there are just people in the world who believe in small and um uncomplicated technologies and then there are these people who believe in very costly expensive and sophisticated technologies because there's, there's something in between which means we allow ourselves to have any technology but as long as it fulfills all of these different principles.
2: Yeah I think Sorry. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. No, you. <laughs> All right. I, I think I think that's that's a great way of looking at it too, and 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 I see it kind of like you know like somewhere in the middle ground also like we we scale it down as much as we can, we make it as simple as we can, uh, you know. But there's also an incentive to make it as good as we can, and to you know eliminate as much unnecessary human labor as possible. And, and it's like there's a happy medium somewhere in, in between the two. And it's up for experimentation, essentially. You know, it's not to say that we have to be, you know, as, as primitive as possible and use as little as possible all the time, or we have to have everything completely automated with AI and you know robots and everything else. Because obviously, that's really might be re, really resource intensive, and then only a few people would be able to operate these things. And you know, or you know, the level of education that would be needed to to uh, you know operate these things might be kind of a barrier to it also. Um, but yeah, it's like, there's, there's a, there's a happy medium there somewhere in between. And I think it's, you know, it's kind of up to the individuals and the culture and the community as well as, you know, whatever problem it is, like you're trying to solve or, or just whatever task, you know, and, and there's no, there's no really right or wrong way. It's essentially just, we're doing it this way. And what are the consequences of doing it that way? How many resources did we use? How much human labor were we able to eliminate? Uh, You know, what were what were the, uh, you know, effects of the products that we produced? Was it better quality? Was it worse quality? You know, and so all these things, like you said, it's it's not one thing. There's a lot of different things to be considered there. And it's really kind of up to the people, you know, and the and the problem and the geography and the circumstances. I think to uh, to implement, you know, different technologies and different ways in different places. And and it, and it's going to depend. It's going to be different from place to place too. Like the solutions that happen in Alaska for certain things aren't going to be the same as the solutions that are implemented in Hawaii or Portugal or. Australia or, or other places and there and there might be certain things that will work in certain places that won't work in other places. And, um, and I think it's good just to admit that we really don't have all the answers to all that sort of stuff yet you know and and a lot of this will evolve as time goes on we'll find better ways to do things as time goes on uh, you know as, as different technologies you know come to surface and others are you know maybe obsoleted for for whatever means and um, it's it's an evolving thing that'll that'll you know kind of uh, consciously evolve, I think, between a lot of different communities and networks and areas and, and people over time to kind of eventually reach a you know, an equilibrium it, wherever those solutions exist, you know, and it, it's not something that's going to be, you know, implemented overnight. Just like, we found it, we found the way and we've arrived, you know, and this is it, this is the way to do this and everybody should do it this way. Cause this is the best way. It's like, no, okay, let's examine all the details. Could it be improved in this little way? Could we, could we manufacture this a different way, you know, a little bit closer and use fewer resources, you know, and could we make this technology a little bit more user friendly in this way? You know, could we reprogram this, you know, or there's so many aspects that, that go into things like that. It's, it's very difficult to just kind of sum it up all in one in a one size fits all way. And, um, you know, that's kind of something that I like to to come back to is, there, there is no one size fits all way for this. You know, it's it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of different solutions for a lot of different people and a lot of different times and places.
0: So. The great advantage of a money free society is that all of these ideas are free. So, in my chapter where I talk about, you know, in a non prescriptive way about an example mm-hmm. of. Um, a society beyond money that's global. We have a global internet work and everyone puts their ideas out there because the ideas aren't worth money. They're not only good ideas if they get absorbed into production for trade, all of that kind of thing. We live in a very confined kind of technological world this would mean great advances in terms of technology because people would share a lot more their techniques, their ways of doing things, as well as actual using of tools within their ways of doing things.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was going to get into is is this idea of a collective evolution, you know, and there's two levels to what we talk about. And And I I often say this to people that I, in so many ways I'm bifurcated between living in two worlds. You know, I live in this right now. Anyway, I'll be gone soon, but I live in this extremely lonely, isolating city that is just, I don't have, I don't have community. I don't have very many people around me that are of a like mind that I can go off into these beautiful, you know, tangential, you know, uh, convivial utopias with, (laughs) but I also live in this world where I'm connecting with people like you in different states and different countries, and we're envisioning and organizing and planting seeds of an entirely new world. And you know, in that way, we live in this world where we have to make steps now, today, with each other, with the people who get it, not with the hypothetical activated mass. That we have to do that, and we are limited in our access, and we are limited in in our our means the means of production are must be simplified and localized because we don't have access to you know the the means to produce some crazy plant that's you know creating proteins out of fermented bacteria or you know generating d- drilling into the crust of the earth to tap into geothermal energy you know we can't do these things i think many of the technologies and solutions to our global problems of creating an abundance that enables A moneyless society that allows all peoples to live at a truly high standard of living, that allows our society and our social organism to truly take care of all beings and all life forms together, and to tackle the immensity of the fragmentation of everything that is this climate crisis, this existential, you know, comet that is coming towards all of us. That I don't think that if it's all local, we're not going to make it. I, I don't. I think that things are. going to be so cataclysmic and so I'm just thinking about like a garment that's on fire and and it starts out the flames start in all different places and I just see it burning till every thread it comes apart you know and maybe there will be some you know slim minority of human beings that are left alive and there'll be you know some very small places that are habitable or you know the very rich will create domed cities and you know revert to some Unimaginable form of, of, of you know, post human existence. But I think that for us to really get it together, it has to start at this localized way. And we have to show people, all those people out there, they're like, moneyless society, whatever. Well, we can show them, like, check it out. We don't have many of the things that make your stupid society, you know, uh, glossy and exciting in the consumer matrix, but we have fucking free time, lots of it. Mm-hmm. We have each other. We live with our friends. We sit around the fire. We eat good food all the time. We are in, connected to our environment. We have the things that matter. We have twenty dogs on our on our property. What you know, <laughs> whatever it is, and there are many things that we can create localized systems that are very advanced. That like I have a, a friend who lives on a place that has its own three D printer, like a like a giant three D printer that makes buildings out of earth, which is not a super complicated machine not everybody has one but it's a great example of solar punk of of convivial technology of something we can get our hands on to create a society that is fundamentally different that shows people what could be done if we get it together on the on the macro but i think it, we must come all together it's kind of like all or no, i don't want to say that it's all of us or it's none of us because <laughs> i think human beings are incredibly resilient and we've been through apocalypses before and i think a few you know, if the big sea collapse occurs, there will be survivors. I, I don't know. I can't say I really <laughs> genuinely doubt it when I say that. It kind of sounds thin coming out of my mouth. I really don't know that if a single human being will be left on the earth or if they will want to. but unless so that means we have to get it together and we have to seize those means of production and and, you know take the great power that's being used to suck the life out of the earth and dim the sun and all these crazy things that that are being done. And use
2: them for good. Sorry, Amanda, you want to go first?
3: Uh, Yeah, I'll just make it really quick. Thanks. And talking about what we need to do and what we need to get our hands on, essentially, and wield it in the most rational, beneficial way possible. Uh, The means of production, I think we have to um, realize that it's not what it always meant, Uh, you know, the the archaic... um, the uh, cliche uh, vision of you know, just just factories comes to mind when you say means of production, and that certainly is what we need in order to make things to you know, uh, meet our material needs. But technology plays such a huge part in all of that today. That's really what we need to get our teeth in and sink deep. If we don't, get a hold on technology, obviously, no grassroots movement is going to go far enough to help because technology is being used so nefariously at this point that it's driving us faster toward the edge than grassroots movements can thwart Mm. it. And so when I think about technology and that whole scenario, it occurs to me that to a degree, Technological advancement, the advent of technology is this millennia's advent of fire. And we can use it to keep us warm or burn our house down. And right now, we're obviously burning things to the ground. Uh, so, yeah, getting, getting, getting our hands on the, the, the means of production is going to mean uh, realizing that we've got to include technology in that bag. Or, you know, we we can make shirts and build eco villages all day long. It's not going to matter if we don't have control of, for lack of better term, of the thing uh, that is the major driving force of society today.
2: And uh, yeah, and to kind of go in that direction too, as technology also, I think again it's 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 hard to put that stuff back in the bag right cuz now we have you know electric cars and iPads and things like that and a lot of people are accustomed uh, to these devices in their lives and they like traveling. They like, you know, being able to get on their device and, and communicate with other people via, you know, social media platforms and things like that. And it's not like we're saying that those things should just go away, you know, that, we're, Oh, we're not going to have enough resources to produce iPads or something like that anymore. Um, but again, it's like a happy medium between the two where I, and and I think people got to realize also, the more this scales up, the more we'll be able to produce, you know, higher forms of technology, essentially, and more, you know, equally or equitably distribute them and and create social justice throughout our economies and communities and things like that, where people do have equal access to this technology. It's not necessarily like every single person on earth needs an iPad, but, you know, if as long as you have access to that iPad, when you need to do or want to do the things that you want to do with it then that's what really matters you know you don't have to be carrying one around in your back pocket or have it sitting on your nightstand 24 7 but you know a, a large part of the systems we talk about are kind of like the more direct democracy means as well, or direct participation in the decision making process. And things like that will likely be, you know, through user interfaces like iPads or computers and things like that, where you're more kind of directly participating in these larger, you know, decision making processes and systems like that. So there's a there's kind of a happy medium again there. It'll probably start small, you know, but again, it's like not every community, it's not realistic for. For every community to have a factory that produces electric cars or a factory that produces iPads or computers or things like that those are the kinds of technologies that will probably likely you know happen on a on a you know you'll have you'll have a factory or something more on a regional scale as opposed to a community scale that produces those sorts of things uh, that's kind of how i would think systems like that would play out in the long run and um You know the the larger and more complex the technology the the more regional those things will be and serve a greater number of people or communities but we also you know can implement systems where people have access to that technology to where they can directly participate more in the decision making processes of you know how those things are made and uh you know how they're distributed and you just where those factories or methods of production take place and things like that. And as time goes on, we'll find more and better ways to do that, more sustainable ways to do that. And, um, like I said, it's again, it's something that starts here and and grows and consciously evolves over time, you know, and it's, It's not like we're saying, oh, put all the technology away because it's no good. No, we a lot of this technology can and and I think will serve us very well in the long term. But it's just, you know, implementing it in in proper ways. Like another one is the electric grid, I think, is a good example of that, you know, because it's not it might not be the most sustainable way to go for every community to produce its own electricity all the time right because there's a lot of places in the world that are not very conducive to producing electricity and there's a lot of other places in the world where people don't live that are very conducive to producing electricity like the hottest places in the world and the windiest places in the world are generally a lot of good spots you know for producing a lot of electricity but because they're very hot or because they're very windy a lot of people don't really want to live there you know so it's kind of like okay well if we you know scaled up to some sort they call it like a super grid or something like that where we start generating electricity in the places that are best suited for it right and we can scale these systems up and and think about how we're going to more equitably distribute that electricity and get you know give everybody access to it then uh you know it it, it might make sense to do it in more ways like that in, in certain in certain things you know i think And it's not to say that certain communities can't produce their electricity and use solar panels or, you know, if you got a little home, it might be better to take that home off the grid rather than, you know, spending all this energy and resources to port in power lines, you know, from God knows where, but It's a case by case basis, I think, you know, and um, and you just got to be aware of what resources it's using and the outcomes and consequences of that. You know, it's again, it's not a it's not a one size fits all thing. And and there's other places that aren't conducive to a super grid, you know, like these tiny island nations and things like that. It wouldn't be wouldn't be very uh, economically efficient to, you know create giant power lines spanning to the middle of the ocean somewhere, you know, when you might be able to have systems within that Island that produce their own electricity and things like that. So take it on a case by case basis and, and, you know, see what the best solutions and outcomes are, you know, depending on the situation essentially.
1: So we are, I think running up on our precious, precious time here with our first episode with our friend Anitra here. I hope you'll join us again on the show, but I I generally like to, um, as a wrap up to uh send things back to you our our special guest and just ask you an overtly pretentious uh haughty big question like where do we go from here you know what is the next step how do we get out of this this mess you know where where do we go that 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 is the questions i think that, that everybody's looking for you know because even if we can go long in this big picture solutions or we have something you know, some little solution here in front of us, a lot of people are still really wondering, like, where the fuck we're going? And I, I'm, I would love to hear your perspective on that.
0: I think a lot of people have become more open to ideas like degrowth and money-free societies, because they um, have become conscious now that with uh, looking at zero net communities, at looking at massive changes in terms of uh, bringing, reigning in all of the carbon emissions that we're going to be looking at big changes anyway. So they might as well become involved in the conversation and they might as well kind of think of all the different ways um, that we can move forward. And my strong belief is, is that everyone needs to be involved in this. This is a way of people feeling much more free about what their futures might be. And it's about greater autonomy, it's about greater discussion, and it's about greater experimentation at this particular stage. Lots of experimentation. So that we notice what things are working best, that we share what difficulties we have with things, women have a range of uh, attractions to a non-monetary society because they have experience of often going sort of out of mainstream society, being pregnant and looking after children and all of that kind of thing. And so... For them, those experiences are already money free in the way that they look at what they give their children and those kinds of things. So mm. I think as people explore these ideas and as they go away, as they hear this program and other programs uh, like you have, um, it's it's a way of things snowballing and people sharing how they feel and think about these things. There's also... Um, Absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
2: Very... Sorry, go ahead. (laughs)
0: Um, The uh, little film that I made alongside my book, or I made it kind of mid-year, it's called Beyond Money Yenemon, and it just goes for, it's under eight minutes. But I think that people just kind of watching that, and as I say, it's not prescriptive, but it's just an idea about how things might Um, be run if they're money free and talking in much the same way as you Matt about okay you have communities that are responsible for being collectively sufficient but you know they're around a lake there's rivers running by them they're on a mountain range all of the communities in that area are all going to be interconnected by their joint by their joint management of the lakes and of the rivers and the mountains and all of those kinds of things, as well as having regional factories, regional hospitals and all of that kind of thing. So there's lots of really exciting things and um, I'm really pleased because that little film has um, become a quarter finalist, won an award of commendation in Canada Shorts Festival. So. These ideas are sort of being recognized in a whole range of areas where people won't necessarily sort of have come along because they expected to see something like that. And I think that's the kind of moving in all directions that we need to be doing and that you're definitely doing as a group. Yeah.
3: Do you mind to repeat the name of that? Beyond Money, what was the last part? Yenomon. It's no money backwards
1: yeah we'll link it of course I think that there's been a lag here because you're in Australia and you're technically in the future you're literally in the next day you're in the day that we can't even see the sun is we're in darkness you're in light you're in And this time is the, uh, the, present. the perspective that we must occupy we must step foot in Australia in the in the world of tomorrow and and trail this blaze this trail into this new this new world this new possibility uh, I, I love talking to you um, I'm it's always great to find other people that are very aligned, that are thinking about these things, that are asking, that are imagining. I think we, in many ways, have a very different view or a very different endpoint or a very different um, sort of uh, approaches in many different areas. But I think that it, the beauty of a money-free world, of a world that is not homogenized under this, you know, uh, this unification of separation, is that many worlds are possible. And I think that's as good a slogan as there's ever been, that mm. we can imagine a world that is not constrained by this singular you know uh, what did you what did you call it in the in that quote the that that, that this this thing this ultimate quantifier that you know uh, reduces the quality of all and it, it just controls what is possible and so any any uh, breadth of imagination any vision that breaks through the cracks is something totally to celebrate and to to um hold fast to the sense of solidarity in that so, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank I'm sure we'll you. have I'm you on sure. again. Pleasure meeting. You. And continue thank the discussion so and continue not. the dialogue. And, you know, we just we need to find the others and connect them. We have to bring and there are all these communities out there that are out there doing this and bring them together into this, you know, shared humanity. Or we will be obscure, we'll remain in the margins. So, I, I feel like we have to end on a little bit of a bittersweet note, even as sweet as it is to find the other people out there that we can put our heads together and join in the vision. We are. The weird kids we're not even the band geeks we are a, minor- a minority of a minority who, ha- who understand from this systematic perspective that you know we are living in a house with an axe murderer and we need to kick them out and it, we have to keep we have to keep talking the talk and um so yeah people like yourself i just i hold up and i respect and i'm so grateful for you to you know be in this world with us
0: Thank you very much. I really I, enjoyed the conversation. Uh, echo
3: his sentiment, <laughs> word for word.
2: Thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. We'll have to do it again soon. Till next time.
0: Each household guesstimates their basic needs annually. Working groups report on the capacity of the local area and the capability of locals to fulfil these various needs. We all plan how we will create and care for things and together decide who gets what. Then we work and monitor and tweak how to fulfil those orders all year round. Once established, planning mainly relies on updating previous calculations and taking account of seasonal, natural factors. We produce, say, corn, apples, solar electricity, potable water, and clothes for particular, already specified people. This is production on demand. We don't need money or markets. Every service or thing created goes to those who ordered them. We discuss and negotiate compacts to produce for and to receive from neighboring or more distant communities those goods and services that we cannot find or make locally. We don't overconsume or go without or waste. We pass on or leave things that we don't need in spaces for others to use them. We have collective stores for emergencies and to fill unforeseen gaps. So production for trade, markets and money are replaced with local decision making direct production on demand, and distribution on the basis of need. Decision-making focuses on diverse, real, biophysical, ecological, and social measures and values. The reward for contributing to collective daily tasks is lifelong security of communally meeting our and Earth's basic needs. We engage together respectfully to make decisions on local production and on the terms of exchange, compacts, with producers beyond our community. Real social and ecological values offer the democratic and materialist terms for replacing money as the organizing principle of society. Collectively satisfying everyone's basic needs, we would fulfill our real human potential as creative, active beings with real freedom, real liberation,
1: real power. As always, thanks for listening, and if you're interested in these ideas and want to do something about it, want to make them real, reach out and join our group. Moneyless Society is working to create steps to create this world that we talk about in the here and now. George Soros dropped us recently and the Koch brothers uh, will not advertise on our program anymore, so all of this is listener supported. So if you really want to help us out and help me keep food in my stomach, subscribe to our Patreon and donate through our website portal. We are an official nonprofit, so if you want to throw the hefty donations at us, it's tax deductible. And remember in your combat with those out there who will deny these things, that all the best things in life are truly free. The conversations we have with friends, laughter, dogs, beautiful days, catching snowflakes on your tongue, falling in love, all of that stuff don't cost a dime. Wherever you are in this beautiful world, take it easy.